I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and I feel like this is going to be a major a major episode. The longest one that I've done to date was Catherine Gray, which was like an hour and a half-ish. It was like an hour, 23 minutes or something. And given how many pages of notes I have, which is um, 11 and a half pages of notes, given that I usually have like six or seven, I feel like this might be, this might be a long one. I also feel pretty confident that this is also going to be a high one of the, among the highest scoringest episodes of vulgar history just based on i mean i've got that many pages because there's that much stuff that happens it means there's that much stuff this woman did it's one of my favorites this is a big deal for me we're getting into we've done lots of women who i feel very strongly about historical figures francis howard carolyn of brunswick but we're really getting into one of my personal favorites of all time. I consider her a heavy hitter. You may not because have you heard of her? I don't know. But who we're talking about is Marguerite of Valois, Queen of Navarre, a.k.a. Queen Margot, which was a nickname one of her brothers gave her. And we're going to just call her Margot because this is what, like the fourth Margaret so far this season and the last one had like multiple Margarets in it. 
she's Margot, just so we can tell her apart from everybody else, and because that's what she went by. And also because I first learned about her story from the 1994 film. The English language title of it is Queen Margot, but it's a French film, and the original French title is La Reine Margot. It's by the director Patrice Chéreau. It stars Isabelle Adjani. It is, oh my god, Verna Lisi plays her mother, Catherine de' Medici. It is such a good movie. The fashion, mwah, amazing. My favorite show of all time, Rain, which was on the CW a few years ago. The costume designer for Rain, which I also love their costume design, said that she was largely inspired initially by, by the movie Queen Margot because it has just the way it really captured a timeless quality and also a fashionable quality while sort of nodding to the historical time period without being like too um, constrained by it. Anyway, it's such a good movie. I was just checking. I'm like, well, where is it streaming so that you guys can all watch it? And I don't think it is streaming anywhere that I could find. But if you just look on YouTube for Queen Margot or Lorraine Margot and then full movie, like it's you can you can pretty easily track it down or you can purchase it on DVD or Blu-ray disc. It's so good. And so that movie is based on a novel by Alexandra Dumas the author of The Three Musketeers and other books like that. So he had a whole kick where he was just writing stories of French people. So he is part of, he kind of took, he was in a sense the Philippa Gregory of his time where he just really looked at kind of all the most scandalous rumors about a person then wrote them up in a novel like, hey, this is what happened, maybe. So the movie Queen Margot is based on his novel, and his novel is based on accounts of the time. And accounts of the time are based on Margot's life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Another great source is a book called, by Nancy Goldstone, it's called The Rival Queens, Catherine de' Medici, her daughter Marguerite de Valois, and the betrayal that ignited a kingdom. I mean, what a title. Incredible. It really gets into... I think my trajectory was like, I watched Rain and loved it, so then I watched... Queen Margot to see what the fashion was like and then I'm just like who is this person so then I read the rival queens and then of course I got numerous facts from wikipedia.com and this is I'm really excited I hope you are too so Margot was born in 1553 she was the seventh child and the third daughter born to King Henry II of France who I guess would be King Henri. And I guess, you know, warning, this takes place in France. So I'm going to uncontrollably start pronouncing some things with a Lumiere. Jerry Orbach is Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast level French accent. So if that's not your thing, there's other podcasts you can listen to because I can't help it. So Margot's parents were King Henri II of France and his wife, Catherine de Medici, who is also one of my historical main I'm a huge fan of her story and talking about her and that's going to be an episode for later and her episode will probably be even longer than this anyway Margot was the seventh child third daughter of these two the king queen of France so her older brothers and sisters were basically all sort of frail and sort of ill and had various physical what were described then as like deformities so they just had lots of physical issues including 
um, just health things as well as just like, I don't know how to describe it. Basically, nobody was talking about the great beauty of any of her older brothers and sisters. But then she, by contrast, it's like all the beauty was saved aside just to be all given to her. So she was apparently a great beauty with a wonderful sense of style um, as a teen slash adult. Foreign delegations wrote lengthy letters back to their home countries about how gorgeous she was, basically describing her as one of the seven wonders of the world. So part of this, for sure, would be how beautiful she was. Part of it might just be like how beautiful she was compared to the siblings who were around her. And part of it, I think, in a Cleopatra-like way was just her charisma was so incredible that you just are blown away by her. So, but we're starting with childhood. Her childhood was spent in a French royal nursery with her older sisters, Elizabeth and Claude. Claude, by the way, is a great name for a girl. Recommend that. Bring that back. And they're cared for by a woman. Oh my God, my cat is going to walk on my laptop. Are you excited about this? Or do you just want water? I don't know. So she and her sisters were raised under the care of Charlotte de Vienne, the Baron de Courton a wise and virtuous lady greatly attached to the Catholic religion. So, side note, France, super Catholic country at this point. At least the royal family was. This is going to become quite important as the story goes on. And both of her older sisters got married. They're quite a bit older than her. So after they married and they were sent off, Margot grew up in the Chateau d'Amboise with her brothers Henri and Francis, who were the ones closest to her age. And it was during her childhood, her brother Charles, Charles, gave her the nickname of Margot. So just she, her siblings, hanging out, being kids together. When she was six, her father Henri, the king, died from a jousting accident. He got like a splinter in his eye or something like that. And her oldest brother, Francis, became king, aged 15. Her brother Francis, fun fact, was married to Mary Queen of Scots who is another heavy hitter who I'm going to talk about later. So Mary, Queen of Scots, though, spent most of her childhood in France, even though she's the Queen of Scots for various reasons. I'll explain in a different episode. But so Mary, Queen of Scots grew up with them all, so almost like an honorary sibling. So she would have known Margot quite well as well. Margot studied grammar, classics, history, the Bible, and learned to speak Italian, Spanish, Latin, and Greek, in addition to French, obviously, because she was French. She was competent in prose, poetry, horsemanship, and dancing. So just well-rounded. Her brother Francis, or I guess he'd be called what, Francoise, was only king for one year before he died of an ear infection or possibly was poisoned by Protestants because I said France was a big Catholic country and the royals were, but there was a big amount of Protestants who wanted France to be a big Protestant country he probably died of an ear infection though he was like sick all the time Francoise so he died without an heir Mary Queen of Scots sent back to Scotland and again that's a whole other episode and the next king of France was the next oldest brother who was 10 year old Charles so at this point Margot is like seven years old so it's a brother who's close in age to her the one who called her Margot because the, these were two boy kings in a row, their mother, Catherine de' Medici, effectively controlled everything in their name because she was a very effective, controlling, powerful person. 
and yeah so it's that thing with the boy king where he's just kind of like doesn't do much and people around him do lots of stuff what was it like growing up at this time in french court so margot's future mother-in-law wrote about margot she is beautiful discreet and graceful but she has grown up in the most vicious and corrupt atmosphere imaginable i cannot see that anyone escapes its poison because basically during the time that margot was a young person French royal court was a place of publicly performed religious devotion and privately held licentious abandon. So just like lots of sex going on. And this is again, getting back to the movie Queen Margot. There's just like Margot is just kind of like wandering down the hallway, looking kind of bored and all around her. There's just like people having an orgy and she's just like, Meh, I've seen it, you know, like whatever. Her mother, Catherine de Medici, kept a close eye on everything with the assistance of her female servants who were called this is true the flying squadron and they were courtesan slash spies so they were just kind of sexy spy ladies in waiting who kept an eye out on everything and slept with everybody all the important men so they could bring let Catherine know what was going on all the time and they all together helped cultivate an atmosphere of corruption sexy times and ruthless ambition where everybody was spying for somebody nobody could be trusted and everyone was having sex with everybody beauty was prized above all else luckily for margot as you know the seventh wonder of the world so she and she was also a princess so she was a beautiful princess and that was very valuable at the time when she was eight because all this is how she's still a kid margot's role in royal court was defined by her engagement to Hen Henri. There is there's only one Margaret in the story who's actually Margot slash Marguerite, but there are a lot of people named Henry slash Henri. So as a eight-year-old, she was engaged to Henri of Navarre. Navarre was a nearby principality close to France, like kind of is part of what France is now. And he was also sent to be raised with her at court, like how Mary Queen of Scots was. You're just like kids and you're raised alongside your siblings and also your future spouse. But what this leads to is she seemed to perhaps come to see her fiancé as kind of an, just one more obnoxious brother. Because she had so many brothers. We're just going to call her boy fiancé Navarre. He's Henri of Navarre, but there's just like, there's going to be a lot of Henri's. So he's Navarre from now on. Like most royal princesses and girls at this time, Margot was a pawn to be used by her family to cement political relations with other royal families, to provide heirs, and to help maintain and expand her family's stronghold over France and the nearby principalities like Navarre. But here's the thing. Margot wanted something more. You know, Beating the Beast also takes place in France, the Disney film. She wants much more than this not provincial life, but this licentious sex court life she wanted passion romance and adventure she also was brought up in this place not unlike our culture where being beautiful and youthful was kind of the most important thing so she wanted to marry someone super handsome the sort of man who was her equivalent who would turn eyes every time he entered a room but who would also be strong and manly and brave is that a lot to ask for Regrettably, she was engaged to Navarre, who was basically nothing at all like that. 
and as I said, grew up with her and was kind of more like a pesky younger brother figure than someone she would ever want as her lover. So, but also perhaps more than Navarre's apparently not amazingly attractive looks and his immature personality, he and his family were Huguenots, which is a French way of saying Protestants. And I do not know the details of the Catholic slash Protestant divide in France, other than what was on the TV show Rain. But Huguenots, well, it's just, I, I think they're just basically Protestants. And there's this great religious tension. So Navarre's mother was called Jean Delbret, who was very cool also. And she was not a fan of Margot's Catholic royal family. Jean was especially not a fan of Margot's mother, Catherine de' Medici, who was from Italy and people thought poisoned people all the time. Slash also she did poison people all the time. So Jean was maybe right to be suspicious. I'm not sure if this is in my notes, but especially because later on Jean would die because of allegedly poisoned gloves, allegedly given to her by Catherine de Medici. So Jean Delbras saw her son being kept at French court as something kind of like kidnapping because they were Catholics and Catherine was so whatever, Italian, which she didn't like. So Jean schemed to escape with her son back to their home palace in Navarre. Because I'm calling him Navarre, but he's Henri of Navarre. Navarre being the place he is from. So when Navarre and Margot were both about 14, Jean successfully kidnapped him or just kind of grabbed him and ran. So not only that, her plan counted on Catherine not finding, oh no, her plan counted on Catherine unknowingly funding their flight. So somehow she had tricked Catherine de Medici to pay for this. Not sure what that was, but like good scheminess there for Jean. Catherine de Medici was really mad. Margot was probably secretly relieved because she didn't really want to marry this guy. And now there was seemingly no no way she'd ever be forced to marry this annoying little brother type person because his Navarro's family had just betrayed her family so cruelly. And as fate would have it, the absence of one Henri was filled with the arrival of another in the form of Henri, the Duke of Guise, who I'm just going to call De Guise because, again, there's a lot of Henri's in the story. So De Guise, the thing is, was gorgeous he was three years older than her she's 15 at this point he's 18 he was tall and blonde athletic charming and valiant in the battlefield he was also well known for his skill at seduction and in a court obsessed with physical beauty he rose to become margot's equal sort of a prom king and queen type scenario and by now margot was 15 so she had been the prettiest girl and now she was the loveliest woman at court and not just for her physical appearance, but her sense of style, her gracefulness at dancing, and her charming personality. So she was just head and shoulders above literally everybody else. Diggies was the same thing, man version. So they seemed like a perfect match. And politically, it seemed like an appropriate setup. Because especially Margot's older sister Claude had already married into the Diggies family. And his family had taken roles as senior advisors to her brother, King Charles. So it all seemed like everything's coming up Margot, but this is, I'm on page like two of 13, so buckle up. What happened next is that the De Guise family got caught up in a conspiracy to kidnap 
King Charles, which destroyed friendly relations between the two families, as it does when someone conspires to kidnap someone who is the king. So up until now, Margot had somehow managed to avoid the cutthroat game of thrones type situation constantly playing out among her siblings and her mother. But her relationship with Deguise kind of, I don't know. She was in a bubble of just like being gorgeous and liking boys. And then suddenly she's like, oh shit, now I have to start scheming too, I guess. And then enter the story's third Henri, who is Margot's brother, Prince Henri, Duke of Anjou, who we're going to just call Anjou for now. Margot and Anjou were good friends growing up. They're a similar age, I think. Anjou was Catherine's favorite child, and he hated his brother, King Charles. Charles, in return, hated Anjou for the way that Catherine obviously liked him better, um, and he hated how Anjou clearly wanted to be king instead of him. Anjou also hated de Guise because he was taller and more handsome and was better as a soldier. So when Anjou learned that Margot had feelings for de Guise, Anjou saw a way to use that to his advantage. So Anjou manipulated Margot to side with him against Charles by flattering her, then coerced her to advocate for his interests with their mother, getting closer to Catherine so that Margot would be the first with her and the last to leave her. Catherine didn't know why Margot was suddenly so close to her, but with Anjou off fighting battles, she began to shower Margot with attention, making her the favorite now, opening up to her with her most private thoughts. So for four months, which is June to October 1569, Margot did just what her brother had asked of her, because she trusted him and she liked him. And then things got pretty weird. I don't super understand the precise betrayal that occurred, but here is my best understanding of it. Anjou um, snitched to Catherine that Margot wanted to marry de Guise. Catherine, of course, hated de Guise at this point because this is post the whole um, betrayal situation. Margot was close to Catherine and that, that made everything risky for her and for her brother Anjou because Margot knew some of Catherine's secrets. Oh, and then if she married de Guise, then Margot potentially could tell de Guise more of Catherine's secrets or something like that. So Catherine's just like, well, we can't, we can't have this. We can't have Margot marrying de Guise. The main thing was that Anjou alleged that not only did Margot want to marry de Guise, she was trying to make it happen actively. Like, was she? Probably not. Anjou's just a dick. So, and just like in England, princesses can't just decide who they're going to marry. It has to be approved by the king. And in this case by Catherine de Medici, who is effectively the king, the mother. So Catherine, if you followed all of that, effectively Anjou just fucked Margot over by blabbing on her to Catherine and making it all sound worse. So Catherine got so mad at Margot for going behind her back, allegedly, and Margot would never forgive Anjou for setting her up and then selling her out. So this is just a falling out between all three people. But Anjou is still Catherine's favorite. But having said all of that, um, Margot and Deguise likely weren't even lovers. They maybe, maybe flirted or wanted to get married to each other. But they probably... Oh, that's part of it. Anjou told Catherine that Margot was lovers with Anjou. This was one of the rumors spread by her family's enemies later on to try and make her look like a sex-mad nymphomaniac. There's a lot of rumors about Margot and her 
alleged lovers and some of them are true and some of them are not true but this one seems like the two of them weren't actually together at any point so note at this point there are unsubstantiated rumors that Anjou and potentially some of her other brothers sexually abused Margot uh, Anjou definitely seemed to uh, psychologically manipulate her but he not to excuse him but he did seem to enjoy manipulating anybody um for instance just for instance of Anjou's fuckery so at one point when de Guise was recovering from an injury Anjou arranged for de Guise to return to French court where Margot happened to be also convalescing from an illness Diggies visited her frequently, doing his best to assure her that his family was back in the royal family's good graces, even though that was not true. Um, unclear, did Diggies want to marry her, or was he just trying to seduce her? Anyway, this whole thing came to a head because one of Margot's ladies-in-waiting, who was secretly in the payroll for Anjou, brought one of Margot's letters to Diggies to the king. And I think the lesson we learned from that is just this family is fucked up, and also you shouldn't um, have letter-based evidence of your secret sexy relationships with forbidden French dudes. But also, so Andrew just, like, fucked around with her. And did they also sexually abuse and assault her? Who knows? Um, but that also was a rumor that was spread because of people who were enemies of her and of her brothers later on. If you watch the movie Queen Margot, it just seems like the whole family is having sex with each other all the time as part of the just like licentiousness but again that is a movie based on a book based on a lot of rumors oh my god so all this happened um Anjou fucked her over and then Charles her brother was really upset by her apparent betrayal that he sent for Catherine and then he and Catherine dragged Margot from her bed and beat her quote viciously and this had the desired effect. So, so again, the root cause of all of this was just goddamn Anjou fucking things up just because he sucks. Um, using the king to against Margot, but using Margot to make himself look better in front of his mother. Ultimately, the goal of whoever engineered this was achieved, which is that Margot, terrified of her family for obvious and understandable reasons, agreed to stay away from de Guise. She felt that she would not be safe from rumors of their involvement, which might lead to a, a bad reputation or maybe more beatings until she was married. She went to her sister Claude, hoping that Claude could compel de Guise to marry someone else. Because remember, Claude was married to another one of the de Guise family. And Claude did her a solid. In this family, sisters are much better than brothers. De Guise was married very quickly to another woman. Margot and her family attended the ceremony because this is all like a very murder-y high school where no one can ever avoid seeing each other at the big parties, kind of like on Gossip Girl. But the lessons that she learned through this wild sequence of events was one that would come to serve her for the rest of her life in order to survive within this royal court and within this murderous family she needed to remain vigilant and careful and suspicious of everybody constantly so a hard learned lesson by this point Catherine who had a very strong and forceful personality had alienated a lot of other important families such that 
she was having trouble finding people to like sons to marry Margot. So despite her best efforts to try and find literally anyone else, she uh, re-implemented the engagement of Margot to Henri of Navarre, the annoying boy who she'd grown up with. Yes, he was still a Protestant. And yes, his mother was still one of Catherine's most hated enemies. But a marriage between these two was seen as it would be politically expedient because there were all these religious battles going, like it was ripping France apart, the Catholics versus the Huguenots slash Protestants. But like the the Catholic slash Protestant divide was pretty major. So it was incomprehensible for a Catholic and a Protestant to marry. And so the assumption was that Margot would ultimately convert to her husband's religion and become Protestant. Margot was very, very, very Catholic and religious. And she saw this as being literally condemned to hell because she thought if she stopped being Catholic, she would go to hell. So the pamphlets or whatever that really like to make Margot this kind of like sensationalized figure would claim that Margot didn't want to marry Navarre because he was ugly and had a super unappealing personality, both of which things were true, but Margot's own writings, because yes, she did write her memoirs at one point. She emphasized that religion was the biggest motivating factor behind her not wanting to marry him. She was super Catholic and also he sucked, so she didn't want to marry him. Um, but her, what she wanted did not matter very much because marriage preparations began right away. And in fact, it was during the planning of the wedding that Navarre's mother, Jeanne, collapsed dead while out shopping for gloves. Physicians at the time claimed she died of natural po- causes, but rumors persisted that Catherine had killed her with a set of poison gloves. And frankly, if that was a possibility, I would also subscribe to that theory because poison gloves is an amazing rumor. So this was also, side note, the preparation and the wedding itself occurred during a heat wave and it can get really hot in France. So just imagine that too. Everything is just really hot and sweaty and they're all wearing, you know, lots of layers of oldie time clothes. It was just, you know, a powder keg ready to explode. So everyone was sweaty and tired and I'm sure all all they ever drank in this time, well, I'm not sure, but didn't they only drink wine because the water was bad? So they're all just like half, like constantly drunk slash hungover, sun exhausted, sweaty, just, it's not a pleasant time. Again, you really get that sense in the film Queen Margot. So... Margot and Henry, both 19 years old, were married on August 18, 1572 at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The marriage was controversial because of their different religions. The Pope refused to grant a dispensation for the wedding, and the different faiths of the bridal couple made for an unusual wedding service, such as um, Navarre had to remain outside the cathedral during the Mass, where his place was taken by Margot's brother, who she hated, Anjou. But he was there for, like, the do-you-take-this-bride oldie-time French vows part of it. A 17th historian named François-Eude de Miseré invented the anecdote that Margot was forced to marry Navarre by Charles, who pushed down her head as though she were nodding her assent when she refused to marry. I think that happens in the movie. 
But this was not true. This was propaganda to justify um, some stuff that happened later on. So Margot has had like quite a she's been torn to shreds a lot and a lot of it is based on this propaganda against her and against her family for later reasons that i'll explain Margot did not mention having to have her brother nod her head for her in her memoirs and no one who was actually around wrote about it so it's just this guy francois invented this story later on as was the custom for royal marriage the ceremony itself was followed by four days of celebration which i am also in favor of as was not the custom, at the end of these four days, Catherine arranged for many of the visiting Protestants to be assassinated. So here's what happened. So after Jean died of poison gloves, Navarre, so when she was dead, Margot's husband, Henri of Navarre, became the king of Navarre, and as such, the effectively the leader of the Huguenots slash Protestants. So because he, because of his high profile, most of the prominent French Protestants came to Paris to celebrate the marriage, especially because they also assumed Margot was going to convert. So there's a lot of backroom deals going on. Everybody was backstabbing everybody, just lots of shifty eyes. And it wound up with Catherine arranging an assassination attempt on a leading Protestant general. And then she framed the Huguenots for the crime, even though she had done it. The night that this happened... Margot was sitting with Huguenots, all of whom were surprised and confused by what was happening. Margot saw clearly none of them had been involved because she was right there with them. Like, they did not know that this assassination was going to happen. So the next day, word began to spread that the Huguenots had been behind this attempt themselves in an attempt to try and make it look like the Catholics had done it. So, like, the layers of this. So Catherine attempted to assassinate prominent Huguenot and then she framed the Huguenots for it, pretending it was like a false flag that they had done to frame her, but really she had done it to frame them, just her mind. Uh, it was a mess. And what happened is that Catholics started killing Protestants, and this became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And lots and lots and lots, lots of people were killed all over France, not just in Paris. This happened over a period of, I feel like days or weeks. It was an extreme, this is, you might imagine, uh, one of the climactic events in the movie. The night that this slaughter began, Margot was woken from her sleep. Um, she had been sleeping by herself, not with Navarre, by a Huguenot stranger stumbling through her door, grievously injured in this um, slaughter. This guy was pursued by armed guards, including four archers, which... I just note as interesting, just archers, like just guys with bows and arrows just running from the hallway pursuing you would be pretty scary and also pretty awesome looking. Margot, acting apparently entirely on instinct, and this is the first major moment that truly defined what she was like as a person, threw herself between the stranger and the palace guards determined to kill him. The guards were ordered away and Margot was permitted to tend to the wounded man, saving his life. She then set out to see what she could do because... She was now the Queen of Navarre. She wanted to help protect other Huguenots who were under threat, including her new husband. In her memoirs, Margot remembered that she saved the lives of several prominent Protestants during the massacre by keeping them in her rooms and refusing to admit the assassins. Her eyewitness account of this massacre is one of the is the only one from the whole royal family of what things were like for them. So her husband, Henri Navarre, 
had been forced to convert to Catholicism to save his life for the time being. Uh, This was really major. He probably also felt like he was going to go to hell for switching religions. So this was very humiliating for him. Um, And then Catherine forced him to parade into a Catholic mass, being like, look who's Catholic now, this guy. And then she set out to have the marriage annulled because they had done their work in her master plan to make a whole religious massacre happen. Uh, Given that they had only just gotten married and they almost definitely had not yet consummated their union, this probably could have been done pretty quickly, this annulment. And Catherine probably was planning, once Margaret was freed of her husband, she could probably have Navarre killed. But the thing is, Margot knew that this was the plan. And as much as she probably wanted to be freed of marriage to a man who she did not want to be married to, she already felt guilty for her complicity in the massacre, which is like, girl, it wasn't your fault. Like, how could you have known? Well, I don't know. She probably knew her mother was up to something, but how could she have known her mother was up to this? Let me just look this up. One sec. I'm just looking at more about the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. So just to really come across the massiveness of this. So as per Wikipedia, uh, this was a targeted group of assassinations and a wave of Catholic mob violence directed against the Huguenots, French Calvinist Protestants. Um, The massacre took place a few days after the wedding of Margot to Navarre. Uh, the massacre began the night of the 23rd to the 24th of August, 1572, the Feast of Bartholomew, which is why it's St. Bartholomew's Day. That's two days after Catherine's alleged attempted assassination. Okay. So the slaughter spread throughout Paris. Lasting several weeks, the massacre expanded outward to the countryside and other urban centers. Modern estimates for the number of dead across France vary widely from 5,000 to 30,000. The massacre also marked a turning point in the French wars of religion. The Huguenot political movement was crippled by the loss of so many of its prominent aristocratic leaders because they were all in Paris for the wedding. They were just lured in, um, as well as many reconversions. A bunch of people stopped, went back to being Catholics again. Uh, it was the worst of the century's religious massacres, quote somebody on Wikipedia. Um, throughout Europe, it printed on Protestant minds the indelible conviction that Catholicism was a bloody and treacherous religion. So this all happened just after her wedding, to which Margot, I can see where she would have felt guilty for her part in this, but like it was not her fault. I don't think. Effectively, she didn't want her husband's blood on her hands, too, after she felt like she had the blood of like 30,000 French Protestants. So, sort of like, like, first she saved the stranger's life, which, if you watch the movie, he turns into her lover, and it gets very sexy, but in real life, it was just a stranger who she saved because she was, like, a good person. And then what she did, in a similar way, she refused the annulment. She said that annulment was impossible because she had already had sexual relations with Henri and was, in every sense, his wife. Later, she wrote in her memoirs, I suspected the design of separating me from my husband was in order to work some mischief against him. So she saved his life by claiming that they had had sex already when they probably hadn't, and she totally could have lied about it. So in so doing, she... So her husband now is sort of in her protection, meaning her family could never kill him because it was her husband. 
In a brutal twist, Henri of Navarre never learned that she had done this for him. He assumed incorrectly that Margot had been involved in her family's treachery, and the night she spent chatting with the Huguenots, she had known what was to come. Her true motivations were never revealed until her memoirs were published, long after both of them had died. So that's just hashtag tragique. So, the way that life always does, even after a life-altering, horrifying thing happens, is that life just returns pretty much back to normal in a weird way. Henri of Navarre was now a tentative ally to Margot's family, and he was invited along with Anjou and others to help quell an uprising in the countryside because he was quote-unquote Catholic at this point. In his absence, Margot was left alone, a married woman of 19, a much freer and more enjoyable status than she'd enjoyed as a single, unmarried teenager. So while he was away, she turned up with the most fabulous girl squad at court, led by Henriette de Cleves and Catherine de Clermont-Dampierre, attending all of their soirees and parties, socializing with artists and writers and great thinkers of the age. Due to their beauty and proximity to creative minds and artists, this group of noblewomen became known as the Muses of Paris. And I have to say, I know I keep talking about the movie, you can watch it or not, but Henriette is in the movie and she is amazing she's the coolest coolest person in the movie there's a part during i think it's during the massacre she's just like like she's just like loves the chaos she's so cool so at one of these soirees being hosted by the muses of paris margot met joseph de boniface known as la mole la mole was an infamous ladies man 20 years older than her a sort of cooler, more grown-up version of her younger, her first love, Diggies. I picture him as sort of a... I picture him sort of like George Clooney circa the first Ocean's Eleven movie, just sort of like an adult man, just very dapper and charming with like a roguish glint in the eye. Apparently, La Mole was so skilled at wooing women, he had been sent as Francis' representative when Catherine was trying to convince Queen Elizabeth I to marry one of her sons. So she didn't send her, notably, she didn't send her sons. She sent this sexy guy to try and be like, hey, ooh la la, like marry one of these French guys. Maybe they'll be as handsome as me. He was also a friend to Margot's other brother, whose name was Hercules. But then he changed his name to Francois after the death of their older brother, Francois. And he was the Duke of Alençon. And so I'm going to call him Alençon. Or maybe Françoise. Apparently the fact he was called Hercules, or I guess Hercule, was when he was like small and like not particularly Hercules looking, made him sort of the butt of jokes, which is why, partially also why he changed his name. Meanwhile, Margot's other brother, Charles, was still king he had a fragile you know what how many times has this happened this season just like what's his face in the isabel portugal story henry the sixth and margaret of anjou story charles was a boy king who just like could not deal which is fine if you're a person but when you're the king it's just a sucky way to be he had a fragile mental state and he was often ill like all of the siblings were his younger brother anjou was elected king of poland i'm not sure what that is about but just note that um oh my god i only vaguely understand this i'll just read to you what it says and hopefully you will get the gist so anjou 
elect the king of Poland. Anjou was also a big fan of suppressing Protestants. So a group of moderate Catholics called the Malcontents supported a plan to get rid of Charles and Anjou, and in their place, elect the third brother, Françoise, as the new king instead, because he was more moderate and less of a religious fanatic. Because Margot hated her other two brothers, she helped Françoise with his coup, along with her fellow muses, Henriette of Henriette and uh, Catherine of Clermont. But then the conspiracy was exposed. The leaders of the plot were arrested and decapitated. Uh, Francois begged for forgiveness and he was granted it from the king, but La Mole became the fall guy for the plot. He was found guilty largely due to the existence of a wax figurine pricked with needles found in his room in which was thought to be a threat to the king. Which is the wildest twist since poison gloves in the story but guess what the story's not done la mole was put to death and in one of those rumors that is so great i really hope it's true margot was said to have had his head preserved for her to keep with her always in the book by alexander dumas and in the movie she does this she just takes his head and pieces the fuck out of there so what's up so her brother francois and her husband, Henri of Navarre, were being held as prisoners at this point because of just all this infighting between all the dudes. Then Charles died without an heir, meaning the new king was Margot's brother Anjou, who became King Henri Third, I think. At this point, so when he became the king, Francoise and Henri of Navarre were freed but kept under surveillance and allowed to return to royal court, but Anjou still hated Margot from that whole betrayal thing from when they were teenagers and didn't let her return. Meanwhile, guess who doesn't get along? Margot and her husband. They Things deteriorated because this is just a lot of stuff to go through and they're what, in their like early 20s? Like in a marriage? How much has happened between them? And they didn't even like each other to begin with. Anjou was suspicious of Margot and threatened by her. Especially, um... Oh, I wrote this backwards. Anjou was suspicious of and threatened by his sister Margot, especially because she and Navarre seemed to be getting along better. So Anjou was like, I need to fuck this shit up and make their marriage deteriorate because a happy king and queen of Navarre were a threat to the king of France. So Anjou pulled some more classic that's so Anjou schemes. For instance, he uh, set up Navarre with a new mistress who happened to be also one of Catherine de' Medici, who's still around puppet mastering everybody. She's one of the um, flying squadron of courtesan spies. So Navarre has a new mistress who is spying on him for Catherine and Anjou, because remember Anjou is Catherine's favorite son. Um, Anjou also arranged for Margot to be caught in a compromising position to further alienate her from the rest of the family. So he is just the worst even amidst some truly terrible people so this all worked um navarre and Margot were not getting along very well they didn't even see each other very much he only approached his wife when it served his interests and did not hesitate to abandon her if it did not for her part Margot perhaps uh, took advantage of the absence of her husband to take a lover and the next person in the was he her lover or not is the famous Boussy d'Amboise. That is spelled first name B-U-S-S-Y. Boussy d'Amboise. 
Bousset was a gentleman, a swordsman, a dandy, and a lover of all genders. He was also potentially a lover of Marco's brother Anjou, because this is just a really fucked up story. So, through all of this lover-taking, husband-wife arguing, Francoise, Margot's brother, and Navarre were still under surveillance from their past coup attempt. They both eventually fled. Uh, Navarre did not even warn Margot he was leaving. He just was gone one day. Margot, fucked over again by useless men in her life, found herself confined to her chambers in the Louvre, which was not a museum at that point. I had to look that up. It was a castle. She was not confined to an art museum. But she was confined under suspicion as her husband's accomplice for his escape, even though she had nothing to do with it. In fact, she wrote in her memoirs that actually she had an okay time in confinement. And guess what? The season is women trapped in towers and the assholes who sent them there. This is not even the trapped in towers moment, the biggest one in the story. She will be trapped in other towers. She wrote, I found a secret pleasure during my confinement from the perusal of good books, to which I had given myself up with a delight I never before experienced. My captivity and its consequent solitude afforded me the double advantage of exciting a passion for study and an inclination for devotion, advantages I had never experienced during the vanities and splendor of my prosperity. So just like the people who did okay slash thrived during covid quarantine she was just like you know what i liked having this time by myself to just read books and learn new skills this is resiliency so but meanwhile everybody else she you know what considering everything that happened to her it's like yeah you know what just like read your books like just be away from all your awful brothers your awful husband and just like do you so meanwhile her brother francois who by now was allied with the huguenots took up arms and refused to negotiate until his sister was set free, even though she was, like, thriving and didn't mind. But because of that, Margot was released and then assisted her mother in some peace talks, which is, like, an interesting... That reminds me of Isabella I. She had some peace talk moments, wasn't she? As, like, a teen mediator. If you're keeping track, so Navarre was Protestant again, he had been Catholic to save his life, but now he's, like, really Protestant again. And he tried to get Margot to join him in his kingdom of Navarre. Uh, they reconciled to the point that she was returning his letters and telling him some the court gossip. But Catherine de Medici and Anjou refused to release her to her husband, fearing that Margot would become a hostage in the hands of the Huguenots or she would act to strengthen the alliance between Francois and Navarre. Because she probably would, because that was those are the people she supported, because Catherine and Anjou were terrible to her constantly. In 1577, Margot is given permission to go on a mission to, in the south of the Netherlands on behalf of her younger brother, Françoise. Anjou let her do this because it meant he could maybe get rid of Françoise by making him the new king of the Netherlands. I don't... Okay. Just like, oh, my brother's bothering me. It'd be great to get him out of town. Could we make him king of the Netherlands? I feel like maybe that's how Anjou became king of, what was it, Poland? Anyway, this is just, there. it's just like a normal life, but just like exploded on this international scale. So Margot was like, cool, I'm on it. So she pretended to be going to 
to take the spa waters, she left Paris with her court and then devoted two months to her mission. At every stage of the journey, during brilliant receptions, the Queen of Navarre, a.k.a. Margot, was entertained with gentlemen who were potential allies, and while praising his brother, praising her brother, she tried to persuade them to join Francoise. Was that it? God, I don't even know what her mission is, but I'm sure she's doing amazing at it. Uh, she met the governor of the Netherlands, Don Juan of Austria. Um, almost one quarter of her memoirs are devoted to this mission. I'm so sorry, Margot. I did not read your memoirs, and I don't understand this mission. It sounds like she did a great job, charmed everybody. But at the end, uh, Francoise was incapable of defeating the Spanish army. So she, it didn't work out, whatever she's trying to do. I don't know. So Margot returned to royal court, where... Anjou and Francoise were still fighting constantly. Margot's perhaps lover, Bousset, got in the middle of it. Um, Anjou eventually had Francoise arrested. Uh, Bousset was also taken to the Bastille and fled. I guess he escaped in a very dramatic way. I picture like Bousset. I just picture him with a cloak, just like running around sort of like tuxedo mask on Sailor Moon. Uh, Margot helped Francoise escape by throwing a rope out of her window. She later denied helping with his escape and was believed. This I'm just giving you a list of wild facts that all put together is this woman's life story. At, at this point, they believed that she didn't help him escape and she was finally given permission to join her husband in Navarre. So, she did. They, let's see... They settled in Nerac, capital of Navarre, which was part of the Kingdom of France and where the religious regulations and intolerance did not apply. So she was allowed to be Catholic still while her husband was Protestant. Still, this was like very revolutionary for the age to be a Catholic married to a Protestant. Whilst there, Margot worked to create a refined court that would be a true literary academy that welcomed poets and thinkers. And this is where I'm just like, is she Belle from Beauty and the Beast, but just raised wildly differently? She just loves learning and books. The court of Nirak became especially famous for the amorous adventures that occurred there, aka sexy times, to the point of apparently Shakespeare's play Love's Labor's Lost was inspired by this. Margot allegedly had an affair with a man who is one of her friend, her husband's companions, the Vicomte de Turenne. Her husband, Navarre, uh, endeavored to conquer all the maids of honor who accompanied his wife. So it's just like sex happened, kind of like when she was a kid, but this feels like she's more in control of the situation and maybe less murderousness. Um, in 1579, a religious war called the Lover's War broke out between the Huguenots and Navarre himself. During this conflict, Margot took the side of her husband. This lasted about a year, thanks in part to Margot's idea to get her brother Francoise to lead negotiations, which were rapid and culminated in peace. So he was good at that. So Ellen or Francoise came in, peace negotiations, peaced out. And then Margot's marriage to Henri of Navarre deteriorated yet more, um, potentially because they're both constantly sleeping with other people. Margot fell in love with her brother's senior attendant, Jacques de Harlay, Lord of Chambellon. Navarre was involved. Um, I found 
described as an affair, but I feel like because he was a fully adult man and the person he's involved with is a 14-year-old girl, but so he became involved with a 14-year-old lady-in-waiting named Françoise de montmorency Fosso, known as La Belle Fosseuse, who became pregnant. Margot proposed banishing her from court out of jealousy because she, if you hadn't noticed, has not had any children at this point. But La Belle Fosseuse screamed that she would refuse to cooperate if she was banished. Um, La Belle Fosseuse um, really worked against Margot, tried to incite Henry to hate Margot, hoping that maybe she could be married to him. Francoise gave birth to a daughter, but the child was stillborn. Margot wrote in her memoirs about this, it pleased God that she should bring forth a daughter since dead, which is like very cold, Margot. 1582, Margot returned to Paris. She was initially well-received by her brother, the king, King Henry III, a.k.a. Anjou. Uh, she wrote to her husband to try and convince him to join her in Paris, but he refused. Uh, Margot, oh my god, La Belle Fosseuse was still her lady-in-waiting. Margot was finally able to fire her um, with help of her mother, Catherine de' Medici. This made her husband really mad because he loved being involved with this 14-year-old person. Um, so then in retaliation, I guess, Margot resumed her relationship with Champvalon, who is in Paris now as well. Meanwhile, Margot's relationship with her brother, Anjou, was also strained, which, when was it not? So, Anjou, Francis King Henry III, alternated between a life of just, like, debauchery and, like, sexiness and uh, crises of mysticism and just, like, religious obsession. Margot uh, mocked him and made enemies of two of his chief supporters who retaliated by circulating very injurious reports about her private life. So this is where all of the, like, Margot's such a big slut uh, pamphlets came about from. Um, let's see. In addition, Margot encouraged Francoise to continue his expedition into the Netherlands. This is still happening. I don't understand entirely. Um, Anjou didn't want him to do that because he was afraid there'd be war with Spain. I, sure. Uh, let's see. Margot fell sick in June 1583. Rumors claimed that she was pregnant by her lover, Champvelon. Anjou was displeased by her reputation and behavior, which, like, side note, the reputation that she had developed because of his friends who wrote pamphlets about how she's this nymphomaniac or whatever. So this is, again, like, he set her up to look like a slut and then was like, oh my god, you're a slut. Um, so he expelled her from royal court, an unprecedented and humiliating measure that scandalized Europe. The queen's court, so her court, Margot's squad, was stopped by the king's guards, and some of her servants were arrested and interrogated by the king himself, personally. Um, and part of what they were questioned about was, did Margot have a bastard child or an abortion? Where it seems pretty clear that she just either was real good at birth control or was infertile because she had been married a long time and had several lovers and no pregnancies that we know of. Navarre heard about these rumors that Anjou had invented and he refused to receive his wife because she's so scandalous of a person. So Margot remained for eight months in uncertainty. I don't even know, couch surfing, like waiting for <laughs> France didn't want her and Navarre didn't want her 
and they were had to negotiate with each other like who would be stuck with her because neither of them wanted her after long negotiations Mary was finally allowed to return to her husband's court in Navarre where she received an icy reception in June 1584 so she arrived there in April two months later in June her brother Francoise died and so that was the loss of her most valuable ally with his death <laughs> so this is wild so her brother Anjou had not had any children none of her brothers had any children Francoise just died so Catherine de Medici had so many children but none of them had heirs so it's just like well who the fuck is going to be king of France next uh, the next heir to the throne of France became, plot twist, Margot's husband, Henri of Navarre. Not because of his own bloodline, but because, I believe, he was married to her. So this is super unexpected to me, but to them, they're like, okay, sure. Um, but this made, he also didn't have any children with her. Remember, so no one's having any children. It's like, we need a king and the king needs to have heirs because then if you don't, there's religious wars. So lots of pressure on Henri of Navarre to have children with her or just with someone. So 1585, he had a new lover, hopefully an adult, named Diane d'Andouance. And she just, because everyone in this story has a nickname, she was called La Belle Coruscant. She pressured him to ditch Margot and marry her instead because she was like, I can have babies, Margot can't. And then that same year, in an unprecedented gesture for a queen of the 16th century, Margot fully abandoned her husband, just like, fuck you, I'm out. She rallied the Catholic League, which are just powerful Catholics in various countries, I guess. Uh, they united, oh, she rallied the Catholic League, which united as well the intransigent Catholics. Um, so she just got a whole bunch of Catholics together and masterminded a coup d'etat and seized power over Angers, one of her appendages. Not sure where that is, but it's somewhere that she ruled because she's Queen of Navarre, remember? She spent several months fortifying the city, recruiting troops. She sent them to the assault of the cities around Angers, but then eventually the people of Angers got tired of her demands. I don't know, they're tired of being in this battle. They revolted against her side to take the side of her brother, Anjou, so Margot had to flee. Refusing her mother's pleas that she moved to a royal manor, she instead retreated to the fortress of Carla with a new, maybe, lover who was Jean de l'Art de Gallard, Seigneur d'Aviac. And she appointed him captain of her guards. So she just hung out in a fortress for a year. Um, and after that year, because royal troops were coming to try and take over, Margot took refu refuge in the castle of Ibois a little to the north of Auvergne, as proposed to her by her mother. Can't believe the mother's still around. Um, but when Margot got there, she found herself besieged by the royal troops who seized the fortress. She waited nearly a month for a decision on her fate. It finally came. Um, Margaret was imprisoned by her brother Anjou in the castle of Ousson. Her maybe lover, um, Jean de l'Art de Gallard, Seigneur d'Abiac, was executed in front of her. So it's just like, I don't know. She's not having good luck with lovers. Margot assumed she was going to be put to death as well. And in a farewell letter to her mother, she asked that after her execution, a postmortem be held to prove that she was not, despite gossip, pregnant with her lover's child. But suddenly, 
Can you believe this story is not? Like, it's still going. I've got pages left. Suddenly, her jailer, the Marquis de Cagnac, switched from the royal side. So he'd been supporting Anjou, but suddenly he switched over to the Catholic League side. And then he just, like, on his own, just released her. He's just like, you're free to go. Um, rumors at the court of France reported, because she had this wild reputation as this, like, nymphomaniac, there were rumors that she had maybe seduced him, but more likely she probably bribed him. And then she was free. And this was helpful to the Catholic insurgents because as long as she was still alive, Henri of Navarre would not have an heir and they wanted him to not be king. So this was good for them. Despite obtaining her freedom, Margot decided to stay in the castle of Usson and she just like stayed there for 18 years. She just was like, you know, and you know what she did? She read goddamn books because that was her thing. So she also trained up a new court of intellectuals, musicians, and writers. She restored the castle, so just doing some home renovations as well. Committed her time to reading many works. Um, even her financial condition improved when her sister-in-law, Elizabeth of Austria, began sending her half of her income. So she was still here. So in 1589, her mother died January 1589 from pleurisy. And then that same year, her brother Anjou, a.k.a. Henry III, died that August of being assassinated um, as he was dead. And there were no more brothers to inherit and no more heirs. The new king was her husband, Henri of Navarre. He was not a popular king. Um, for various reasons, he suggested to Margot that they try to annul their marriage. So she was like, mm, should we, I'm sure she'd written lots of books about like, mm, wee wee annulment. I don't know. So she resumed contact with him. Like they had just not been in touch at all to try and improve her financial situation. Uh, let's see. Navarre became Catholic again to try and make France like him better. And I guess she was like cool with the potential annulment um, because she knew that to be a good king of France, he needed to have a child. And like she clearly, she, I think, knew about herself that she was sterile. So she supported the annulment, I guess. So the two of them applied to the Pope for an annulment. And they said that the reasons for the annulment were they... She was sterile. Um, they were closely related as cousins or whatever. And so this there's more talks between, I guess, their representatives and the Pope's representatives. Her financial situation improved because I guess she was just like, mm, should I annul this marriage? I don't know. If you give me money, maybe I will. But she was displeased with who Henry of Navarre wanted to marry, which was his latest mistress, Gabrielle Destres, who doesn't seem to have a fun nickname. Or she does, I don't know it. She was the mother of his son, Cesar, who had been legitimized, um, but Marco considered this a dishonorable remarriage. And I don't think this is her being petty. I think this is just her, like, real religiousness coming up. Remember how she's always been, like, so, like, serious about stuff? Um, but also she was a petty bitch who loved drama, she wrote, It is repugnant to me to put in my place a woman of such low extraction and of so impure a life as the one about whom rumor speaks. 
So she did not want that person. So she stopped the annulment negotiation. She's like, I'm not going to annul the marriage if you're just going to marry that whore over there. But then Gabrielle, the mistress, died from exclampsia and negotiations were back on. I feel like at this point you'd say, like, did Gabrielle die of poison in gloves? But whatever. Gabrielle conveniently died. Margot demanded, in exchange for the annulment, strong financial compensation and the right to retain use of her royal title, Queen of Navarre. So there was a trial as part of this situation. Um, witnesses reported that Margot had been forced by her mother and brother to marry Henri. And eventually the two were granted an annulment from the Pope. A year later, guess who Henri of Navarre married? Marie de Medici, a relative, a much younger relative of Margot's from the Medici side of her mother. Nine months later, Marie de Medici had a son. She was also cool, Marie de Medici. Definitely possible future podcast subject. Um, once they were annulled, guess what happened? The relationship improved. Um, Margot had been in exile for 20 years, but finally entered the good graces of the King of France, who was her husband, who I guess now is Henri IV. But let's see. But she was super smart. She could spot a scheme from far off based on her entire life experience. Uh, let's see. So her brother, Charles, who had been the king before, had a bastard son called the Count of Auvergne, whose mother had been a mistress of Navarre's. So basically she found out that her bastard nephew was going to try and usurp the throne, I guess. So she told her ex-husband. Um, and then the Count of Elveron was caught and all of his property was confiscated. Margot thought that as a result of this, she herself would then inherit from Elveron the property that he had from his father. Uh, but there's just a lot of disinheritances. And Margot initiated a long trial to try and get this land. The king allowed her to return to Paris to manage her legal case to try and get this land. In 1594, Margot learned about a published work, a book that included several mistakes and false rumors about her. And she's like, I think not. And that was when, to set the record straight, she wrote her own memoirs. And she was allegedly the first woman maybe the first royal woman to have written memoirs the memoirs were not published so she wrote them 1594 but they were not published until 1680 1628 well after her death and the death of most of the people she had written about and then so after 19 years in usan margaret finally returned to paris apparently i don't know if this is for the trial I guess so. Anyway, she finally returned. She looked a mess. Her skin was red and raw. She wore an extravagant blonde wig and her clothes were 20 years out of fashion. But because of this charisma thing, she won the affection of the people. In Paris, she established herself as a mentor of the arts and benefactress of the poor. Um, she had become increasingly religious and she was already pretty religious. So she, now she's like XX religious. Yeah. So she went there for the trial and then a year later, she won the lawsuit against her bastard nephew and gained her entire inheritance from her mother. 
after this, so because she had no children of her own, she named as her heir the son of her ex-husband, Henri of Navarre, and Marie de Medici, who was the crown prince, Louis. This was an extremely important political move for her because, so it had been the Valois dynasty were in charge of France until Henri of Navarre took over, and then it became the Bourbon dynasty, and that's where all the Louis come from. So her naming Louis as her heir uh, basically made official the dynastic transition from the Valois family to the Bourbon dynasty, so there wouldn't be as much um, confusion over who was in charge. Margot, in fact, often helped plan events at court and nurture the children of her ex-husband and Marie, like their cool aunt, in 1608. In fact, Margot is named godmother of Prince Gaston. So she settled her household on the left bank of the Seine in a place called the Hostel de la Reine Marguerite. So basically the Queen Margot's place. This palace became a Parisian political and intellectual center because she's this big book nerd. She gave brilliant receptions with theatrical performances and ballets that lasted until late at night and had great patrons. She also opened a literary lounge where she organized a company of philosophers, poets, and scholars. Um, Margot... Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> On May 13th, 1610, Queen Margot attended Marie's coronation at St. Denis. I'm not sure why Marie was not coronated until then. She had been married to Henri of Navarre for a while. The following day... Henri of Navarre, uh, Francis King Henry IV, was assassinated by a, a fanatic monk. And Marie, his widow, obtained the regency for the minor child, Louis. So in 16... That's just like a quick little paragraph where it's like so much has happened. It's like that's just a couple sentences. Sure. Fanatic monk. Okay. In 1614, Margot wrote a book called The Learned and Subtle Discourse, in which she affirmed the superiority of women over men, arguing that God and the creation of the world started from the lower creatures up to the superiors, and the woman is the last created creature, not even from the mud like Adam, but from a rib. Furthermore, the delicacy of the aesthetic forms of women reflects their perfection. She wrote, The world is not made for man and man for God, but rather the world is made for man, man for woman, and woman made for God. So... Some cool writing there from her. Um, and then in early, in March 1615, so a year after she wrote this thing about, like, women are the best, she became ill. She died in Queen Margot's place on March 27th, 1615. Like every French royal person who died before the French Revolution, um, at some point her tomb was sacked. Um, her casket disappeared and nobody knows where it is anymore. The end. Um, but not really. So the thing is that Queen Margot's life is obscured by the legend of the sexy nymphomaniac Queen Margot. Uh, the myth of a nymphomaniac, an incestuous woman in a damned family. So these stories began partially because her brother was an asshole and got people to start these rumors. Um, but then also there was a lot of anti-Valois propaganda created by the Bourbon dynasty, so the descendants of Henri of Navarre. 
and court historians just trying to be like the Bourbons are great, but before them the Valois were just like so gross and awful, and Margot just became sort of the scapegoat for all of that. Um, many slanders were spread throughout her life, but there's one pamphlet um, written by Theodore Agrippa d'Aubignier were very successful in the sense that they really caught on and subsequently these facts were handed down as if they were as if they were facts even though they were just made up slanders and i already mentioned shakespeare's comedy love's labor's lost is possibly based on the attempt at reconciliation between margot and henri um in 1630 cardinal richelieu and his historians initiated a campaign against Marie de Medici, Henry of Navarre's second wife. Um, and in so doing, they systematically discredited all women and their political role. And this revived the legend of Margot, the like crazy sex queen. And then, well, I don't know. See, right in one place that her brother Charles had invented her nickname, Queen Margot. But then here it says that Alexandre Dumas is the one who invented I don't know if he invented calling her Queen Margot, but he definitely popularized for a new generation what was the, the deal with her. And that was his novel, which the movie that I love is based on. And let's see, between the 19th and 20th centuries, some historians, such as Count Leo de Saint-Poncy, sought to rehabilitate the figure of Queen Margot, but these studies did not affect the narrative but um, only since the 1990s have some historians contributed to rehabilitating the image of Margot and distinguishing between the historical figure Marguerite of Valois and the legend of Queen Margot. But um, <laughs> this says, however, literary works and cinematographic works such as the 1994 movie continue to perpetuate the image of an obscene and lustful woman and i would say it does to a point because it the film really shows her as being sort of trapped in this sort of sexy thing but then becoming her own person i will say the movie does not include her reading a lot of books which apparently was a big part of the real margot's life but i also say this movie ends after la mole is beheaded so there's a lot that's not in there I mean, scoring. Come on. Scandaliciousness is a... Uh, I was going to say 10. Then I was going to say, like, some of the stuff was alleged and made up. Did she have all these lovers? I don't know. But the fact that there are all these scandals about her, I'm going to give her a 9. Not a 10, just because it's not 100% how much of this stuff is true and how much of it was lies. But there's, like, a lot of juicy stuff there. Uh, scheminess is a straight up 10 just because after a slow beginning of her accidentally trusting her family and then she learned not to so this isn't like a scheme but like when she stepped up to save that Huguenot who was injured when she saved her husband's life when she and then I mean she like what she like usurped power over this like town and castle for a year like she just like got it done excellence and scheminess i think her significance is as per so many of these interesting because she was not personally 
she was queen of Navarre, but like she didn't do a lot as queen of Navarre. But I don't know, like her significance, I think, is encouraging and mentoring all of these, you know, artists and writers and having the plays and being a patron of the arts and stuff like that would have not so. I think the significance is like artistically speaking, not so much of like the course of world events. Like if she had not been sterile then maybe someone else would have wound up being the king of france but i think i feel like her significance because she did so much and affected so many people's lives and it said she was also patroness to the poor which is cool of her i'm going to give her an 8.5 for significance sexism bonus straight up 10 just because she didn't want like her brother so awful to her her mother's so awful to her like she just wanted to marry a guy and they made her marry some other guy and then if it wasn't for the patriarchy like she could have been queen and probably would have been better than any of her brothers so that's a 10 so this is quite a score oh my goodness 20 37.5 I thought this was going to be a big deal. And then this is the biggest of deals because Queen Margot is now far and above the champion of this scandalous scale. I'm sure someone else will one day emerge to challenge her for this, potentially even her mother, Catherine de Medici. But, but yeah. 37.5 like the next closest to her is joanna of naples 33 agrippina 31 like legendary i knew she would be i hoped she would be i don't plan the scores beforehand i just i truly just do it as i think of them and that wow i mean super congratulations to queen margot for life well lived and so I've been giving a little recommendation at the end of everything and I feel like I already have mentioned it 7,000 times to you but my recommendation today can only be the 1994 film Queen Margot aka Lorraine Margot which it's not super easy to find I don't know Maybe in some other countries it's streaming. In Canada, it is not streaming anywhere, but you can find it if you search on YouTube for the full movie, or you can get it on disc. Maybe your local public library has it on disc. It's just a really good time. Um, And that's... I'm just in the afterglow of like telling... I mean, I'm going to put a quiz or a poll up on Instagram tomorrow the day after about this but just like you know from the poison gloves to the fanatic monk like what what does this story the beheadings the lovers the massacre like what does this story not contain it's legendary and i think this is part of why i'm being careful about when i unleash a story of this magnitude because otherwise it'll just sort of subsume everybody else's stories with how much stuff they do so i mean this is a vulgar history podcast my name is ann foster and 
things for you to know. So I'm on Instagram, uh, Vulgar History Pod, on Twitter at Vulgar History, on my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Ann Foster Writer. I've been doing one extra episode for Patreons only every month. So this for May, I did one about Archibald Douglas, the father of Margaret Douglas, which is like quite a saga in and of itself. Um, for June, lots of good candidates. And if you join the Patreon, you can vote on who you want me to do that episode for. And all the money from the Patreon, just so you know, goes towards me being able to do this podcast and which takes time and effort and money and so that helps me pay the back uh there's also i've got new merch finally for the season in the oh i think the address changed for the merch store no it still works it's still the same so if you go to the link is in the show notes but it's teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history so what we have on offer at this point is we have a shirt that gives the definition of the word defenestration which means the action of throwing someone out of a window. We have a She-Wolf shirt, um, Tudor-era Howard Boy fan club, and Margaret Pohl's Tower of London frequent visitor punch card. Margaret Pohl's Tower of London frequent visitor punch card. They're all text-based this season because that's what I'm feeling right now, and I'll put something super hilarious and cute for Queen Margot because she's just, like, literally a legend. Bow down to Queen Margot. And, oh yeah, and then I super also will re-recommend the book that I got a lot of this research from, The Rival Queens by Nancy Goldstone. So I mentioned that like starting in the 1990s, people started revisiting Queen Margot, what her deal is, but Nancy Goldstone does a great job of really making it a readable and exciting story about everything that she was up to, as well as a lot about her mother, Catherine de' Medici. So you can find that book and other books that I've mentioned in this podcast on the newly revamped uh, bookshop area. So that's the link is in the notes as well. It's bookshop.org slash lists slash vulgar dash history dash recommends. And I've got a book list for each season. And I'm kind of dragging this out because I want to make sure this episode is longer than the Catherine Howard one because that is what Queen Margot deserves but I mean honestly like our whole thing is like living the tits out life and Queen Margot I mean bravo like the tits could not have been more out oh and also here I'll put this picture in the Instagram when I post about this but uh, there's a scene in the movie where I think it's where she and her amazing BFF Henriette are going down the street and there's just like corpses just dead bodies everywhere from the massacre and she's trying to find I think la mole who in the movie is her lover and they both have uh, masks like fabric wrapped around their faces i guess to keep out the smell of the dead bodies i think i don't think it's like a plague aerosols thing anyway it's just very on trend for uh 2021 with the masks in that scene i'll show you that because you know what she's just trendsetter ahead of her time queen margot the as of now ultimate champion of the vulgar history scandalousness scale so have a good one take care everybody keep your masks on and keep your tits out
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.